There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. The title of this episode is The Forgiveness Factor. And I have two very important questions to ask right here at the beginning. Number one, is it necessary to receive forgiveness from God? And number two, is it necessary to forgive others of the damage they've done to us or the hurt they've caused? Though all positive religions emphasize that yes, the second is true, we must forgive others. Many do not focus on the answer to the first question. There are a variety of views on this vitally important and pivotal subject, and we're going to cover as many as we can. For instance, let's start out with Buddhism. In that worldview, there is no concept of a creator God, and the whole idea of forgiveness coming from God is based on accountability to God. So, even though Buddhists stress the need to show compassion toward others, which would include forgiveness, there's no concept of receiving forgiveness from God because that worldview doesn't acknowledge him at all. What about the religion of Japan called Shinto? Shintoists believe in many deities called Kami, K-A-M-I. And they also believe in the need for personal cleanliness. They typically bathe, wash their hands, even rinse their mouths frequently before entering a shrine dedicated to one of their gods. The emphasis on cleanliness reflects the Shinto attitude about sin. Shintoists believe that certain evil deeds called kagare, or dirtiness, can create a kind of ritual impurity. And the opposite is kiame, meaning purity. Sin does not require forgiveness from the gods, but rather sin is a state that causes discomfort for the person who commits it. A sinner can restore a sense of contentment by purifying himself or herself of the dirtiness of the evil deed, but this is not accomplished through divine intervention, but self-effort. What about Hinduism and its more modern offspring, New Age spirituality? Those worldviews both emphasize reincarnation and karma, determining the evolution of the soul. You work out your karmic debt from one life to the next, and evolve to higher life forms, if you will, by sowing only positive karma, but that leaves little room for forgiveness coming from God, as promised in the Bible. Now, some Hindus may appeal to God to be forgiven and cleansed of their overload of negative karma. The dominating mindset, though, is that negative deeds demand a karmic payoff, 
So salvation, once again, is primarily self-achieved. Now, most New Agers are very enthusiastic about a book called The Secret and the Law of Attraction, which it taught. Yet that recent mushrooming megatrend that started in 2006 isn't at all about receiving forgiveness from God or the cleansing of the soul, which is what we need. Rather, the law of attraction is all about manipulating the universe through maintaining positive thoughts to grant us what we want. So it's about what we desire, not what we really are in need of. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And so that wonderful scripture from the Old Testament teaches that humbling ourselves before God and receiving forgiveness is a prerequisite to an abundant lifestyle or to the blessing of God on our labors, our work, our environment, our surroundings. Yes, forgiveness is paramount in Judaism. Let's explore another popular book among New Agers, and that is the book titled A Course in Miracles by Helen Shookman. I haven't talked at all about this book in previous episodes, but its influence should not be overlooked. Most New Agers have studied A Course in Miracles. Let me give you some history about it first. This book and the worldview it promotes resulted from a mutual decision between two professors of medical psychology at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York City. And those two professors were Helen Schuchman and William Thetford. They were professionals working together in a highly academic setting, but by their own admission, their relationship was extremely strained, full of anger and marred by aggressiveness. One day, William, the head of the department, announced that there must be a better way. And around June of 1965, they proceeded to seek it out. Though at one time she was a professed atheist, Helen claimed to begin receiving symbolic dreams and perceiving strange images and after several months, she felt compelled to write down these spiritual impressions, sensing what she felt was the guidance and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in her task. Over a course of seven years, Helen Shookman dictated to William what she felt the quote-unquote voice communicated to her. She claimed her source was Jesus Christ though her teachings are very non-biblical. William typed up the course and made it a collaborative effort and turned it into this book, A Course of Miracles, which was published in 1975 by the Foundation for Inner Peace. Remember the title of that foundation. 
Helen Shirkman died in 1981. William Thetford passed away seven years later in 1988. So they're no longer around, but their teaching is. Now listen to these quotes very carefully. Referencing Christian doctrine, Shookman insists, the crucifixion had no part in the atonement. Let me quote that again. The crucifixion had no part in the atonement. Instead, she claimed, when we forgive ourselves, when we receive forgiveness from fellow human beings, or when we extend forgiveness to others, we are participating in and perpetuating the quote-unquote atonement. See, according to that approach, forgiveness is for God, forgiveness is toward God, but it's not of him or from him. Helen Schuchman said, it is impossible to think of anything God created that could need forgiveness. And then she went on to claim, forgiveness is an illusion, a kind of happy fiction, a way in which the unknowing bridge the gap between their perception and the truth. And then she tied forgiveness to the second coming of Christ. Listen to this very carefully. Helen Schuchman said, Christ's second coming, which is sure as God, is merely the correction of mistakes and the return of sanity. It is the invitation to God's word to take illusion's place, the willingness to let forgiveness rest upon all things without exception and without reverse. Forgiveness lights the second coming's way because it shines on everything as one. It needs your eyes and ears and hands and feet. It needs your voice. And most of all, it needs your willingness. So to Helen Shookman, the coming of Christ, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is when you forgive someone else or when you forgive yourself or when they forgive you. Then this nature of Christ that is, according to them, resident in all human beings is making an emergence. Hmm. Well, they call their foundation the foundation for inner peace, and I'm sure forgiving other people and making an attempt to forgive yourself would bring a semblance of peace, but in no way can it compare to the peace of God that passes understanding that comes from God after forgiveness is established in our lives. I need to cover a group called the Theosophical Society, or just simply Theosophy. It's one of the primary foundation stones of modern New Age spirituality in our culture and our world. The word theosophy comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and sophos, meaning wise. So, in essence, it means the wisdom of God. Those who seek the wisdom of God by searching through philosophy or by the pursuit of mystical experiences or both qualify to be theosophists. Proponents of theosophical concepts can be found in Hinduism, Taoism, Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, and many other worldviews. It's seeking the wisdom of God, but not necessarily in biblical concepts. 
Helena Blavatsky formed the Theosophical Society in New York City in 1875, along with Henry Steele Olcott. Blavatsky claimed to be in touch with spiritually evolved human beings dedicated to the service of the world, ascended masters, they've been called, whose teachings formed the basis of her belief system. So she was in contact with spirit beings. Now, as a Christian, I believe that she was in contact with demonic powers impersonating ascended masters. She promoted a monistic and pantheistic view of the relationship between God and the universe, that all things are one and all things are God, and God is expressed or manifested as the universe. Annie Besant was the woman who succeeded Blavatsky as the spiritual leader of the society after Blavatsky's death in 1891. And then she became international president after the death of Henry Steele Olcott in 1907. Annie Besson was quite involved not only as a proponent of theosophy, but in governmental, educational, and social work in the land of India. And it was Annie Besson who introduced a man named Jiddu Krishnamurti and announced to the world that he was the Messiah of this age that he was the new Christ, the world teacher. He later refuted this claim himself. The founders of the Theosophical Society taught that liberation comes by overcoming negative karma to achieve release from the cycle of reincarnation similar to Hinduism. Again, it's salvation by self-effort. Both Helena and Annie spoke disparagingly of Christian doctrine. Listen to these quotes. Annie Besant taught that seekers after truth should, and I quote, surrender all fallacious ideas of forgiveness, vicarious atonement, divine mercy, and the rest of the opiates which superstition offers to the sinner. Those were strong words. But Helena Blavatsky wasn't any milder. She insisted that such beliefs are dangerous dogma and that in all reality, every ego becomes its own savior. When she was asked if God can forgive sin, Helena Blavatsky responded, this is what Christianity teaches and what we combat. She also rejected the notion that God's mercy is boundless and unfathomable. Human beings do not need mercy. She said they need enlightenment. The promise is also given that every noble thought and every unselfish deed are stepping stones to higher and more glorious planes of being. Again, ascending to higher realms through our own good works. So it's all about evolving through self-effort into higher spiritual states. The last non-Christian approach I want to cover is the United Church of Religious Science, founded by Dr. Ernest Holmes. This religious sect was and is part of something that has been termed the New Thought Movement. Other groups like Science of Mind and Unity Church are a part of that movement. And there's plenty of modern offshoots, like Della Reese, who I met years ago, who played in that very popular series of programs called Touch by an Angel. 
She pastored the Up Church in Los Angeles before she passed away, and it is considered a New Thought Church. This belief system is based on the idea that the human mind is an expression of the universal mind. The universe is the physical manifestation of the universal mind, and we are part of that manifestation. So every individual has a Christ nature. Dr. Ernest Holmes published his beliefs in the book, The Science of Mind, in 1926. And then, a little over 20 years later, the United Church of Religious Science was established. Now listen to the quotes that I've got from Dr. Ernest Holmes. He said, we have tried to show that there is no sin but a mistake and no punishment but a consequence. It's the law of cause and effect. Sin is merely missing the mark. God does not punish sin. As we correct our mistakes, we forgive our own sins. I need to repeat that. He said, as we correct our mistakes, we forgive our own sins. Another quote that lends more understanding to his belief system He said, true salvation comes only through true enlightenment, through a more conscious and more complete union of our lives with the invisible. And so it's not about being forgiven of sin. It's about coming into unity, coming into harmony with the universal mind and thinking in the same way. Dr. Holmes also offered when any individual recognizes his true union with the infinite, he automatically becomes the Christ. Did you hear that? He automatically becomes the Christ. How would that compare with Christianity? Well, no Christian who is a follower of Jesus would ever aspire to become the Christ. Now, the word Christian means Christ-like, But no one can ever ascend to the status, to the level, to the greatness of the one who was in the beginning with God and was God, the eternal word that was God manifested in the flesh when he walked in this world. When the angel Gabriel announced what his name would be, he spoke to Joseph and said, Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or in the Hebrew, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Because the Hebrew word Yeshua means salvation. Well, there is the foundation of Judaism and Christianity. The idea that we need to be saved from our sins is not about just becoming enlightened concerning our own Christhood. That's not the goal in Christianity. It's about being forgiven of sins and being saved from sin by Yeshua, by Jesus, the one who came for that purpose. When he first began to preach, Jesus exhorted his listeners to repent and believe in the gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and the word gospel means good news, the good news of the message that Jesus preached. 
This passage reveals the two necessary prerequisites for those desiring salvation and forgiveness for sins. The first is repentance, which is genuine sorrow for sin, resulting in a change of mind. And the second is faith toward God, which is confidence and trust that he will fulfill his promises. Those who fulfill these criteria place themselves in a receptive position to receive that divine forgiveness that wipes sin out of existence. Rinsing your mouth or washing your hands or taking a bath is not going to wash sin away. That may take away the filth of the flesh, but it cannot touch the soul. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So not only does God forgive, he cleanses. That means the sin is washed away. He's washed us from our sins in his own blood, the Bible says. That's what real forgiveness from God does. It doesn't cover the sin. It annihilates it. It blots it out of existence. It deletes it and puts it in the trash bin and then empties the trash bin where it cannot be recovered. It's out of existence as far as God's concerned. In Jesus' first main sermon, he spoke a lot about forgiveness. When he gave the Lord's Prayer, one of the lines is, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then when he expounded on the prayer a little more in verse 14 and 15 of Matthew 6, he said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so he connected forgiveness from God and forgiveness toward others inseparably. When Jesus commissioned the apostle Paul to preach to the Gentiles, he said he would send him forth to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins. That's what the resurrected Christ said to Saul on the road to Damascus. When he was going there to persecute Christians, he received this revelation, this blinding flash of a vision that changed his mindset altogether. And instead of fighting against the source of forgiveness, he promoted it from that day forward. In Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and 39, Paul was preaching. And he said, Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, he's referring to Jesus, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Because Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, through the cross, the crucifixion, where he became sin for us and tasted death for every man, which is the consequence of sin. But he took our place and assumed the judgment that should have been ours so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed according to the riches of his grace. Well, the factor of forgiveness is very important when it comes to comparative religion. And we need to promote in all the world that forgiveness is available, but it can only be found 
at the foot of the cross. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.